Those of you who will be remaining in the sanctuary, if you would please turn to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18. Normally I don't wait for the kids to leave before I start, but I'm going to wait for the kids to leave before I start. Some of you have looked at your outline, you know. If you're a guest with us today, I don't make apologies for God's word, but we're going through Leviticus. And this next chapter is a bit of a sensitive chapter. And so welcome to Sylvania. Glad that you're here with us today. Leviticus chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord, your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. That that is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, either of your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside. Their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, their nakedness you shall not uncover, for their nakedness is yours. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, born to your father, she is your sister, you shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister, she is your father's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, for she is your mother's blood relative. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's brother. You shall not approach his wife. She is your aunt. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and her daughter, nor shall you take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are blood relatives. It is lewdness. You shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister as a rival while she is alive to uncover her nakedness. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled by her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech. uh, Nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with one lies with a female. It is abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled by it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things, for by all these the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so that the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you... You are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native nor the alien who sojourns among you. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled so that the land will not spew you out should you defile it as it spewed out the nations which have been in it before you. 
For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus, you shall keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am the Lord, your God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you that when we make the choice to go through your word, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, not skipping anything, that you confront us with incredibly important matters that we normally would avoid because we find them uncomfortable. Father, today I pray that by your grace and for your glory, much will be made of Christ in this area, in this subject, this important point. And Father, that we will yield to your will and to your perspective and that our lives will glorify Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, title of the sermon, Jesus, the Redeemer of Human Sexuality. So I just want to go ahead and just put this out there because I do, whenever people ask me to do their weddings, I require three premarital counseling sessions. And a lot of times people think, oh, okay, premarital counseling with a pastor, he's going to talk about, you know, spiritual life in the home, or he's going to talk about, you know, finances, or he's going to talk about how do you deal with, uh, you know, conflict in general. No, don't deal with any of that stuff. Three sessions. The three things that in all of my years of doing pastoral ministry, uh, over 20 something years now, that I have seen create the highest levels of conflict leading most likely to people wanting to get divorced from each other that nobody ever deals with. So I want to deal with them ahead of time so that doesn't happen. So issue one is expectations. You're going to come into your marriage with some expectations of how you think life's going to be as a married person. And those of you who've been married for a while, you will remember what those expectations were before you got married. And you've learned over the years that you were incredibly wrong about all of those expectations And no one probably told you that. And it was very disappointing. So we talk about expectations. Number two, we talk about communication. Because if you hadn't figured it out yet, men and women do not speak the same language. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just different. The same words might come out of your mouth, but they are not processed in the same way. God has made men and women remarkably different. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I know our society is like somebody's on the Internet now watching this, not from an evangelical Christian perspective. They're like reeling right now. I'm going to look at the Internet camera. Just hang on tight. It's going to get worse. So but men and women do not speak the same language. Not good, not bad, just different. And if you don't learn how to communicate across that language barrier of the way men process information and the way women process information, it's going to create conflict. So we talk about communication. And then the third session, always and forever in my premarital counseling is on marital sexuality. Because it creates more conflict in marriages than you would believe. Because, by the way, you want to bring together in the most severe and extreme way a struggle with unrealistic expectations and the inability to communicate well, it's found in marital sexuality. So this is a very difficult topic to talk about. I... Point one of the sermon, the discomfort of the issue. You should all see your faces right now. 
Everyone is incredibly uncomfortable at this moment. I'm the only one in the room who's not uncomfortable right now because I don't have the awkward gene that most human beings have. None of this is going to bother me today, which is going to make it bother you even more how plainly and openly I'm about to talk about all this stuff. Trust me, you're not any more in any higher level of discomfort than the front row is right now. Okay, just want to throw that out there. And so let's talk through the issue. People don't want to talk about this topic. We just don't. It's not appropriate. It's not polite. It's not we'll fill in your blank. That's fine. But people don't want to talk about this. It's not becoming to speak of in public. What are we, Victorian? No. This is something, listen, remember what I told you if you were here with us when we started Leviticus. This is the first book that Jewish children would learn. There's a reason why in certain cultures, there's a much higher comfort level of discussing this topic. Because they discuss it plainly and openly when children are small. So that it's not a taboo, strange thing. Second, in our culture in America in particular, but in the Western American church specifically, we have a lot of information about this topic, but very little knowledge, communication, and wisdom. A lot of information. Information is not the same thing as knowledge. That would, we could chase a big rabbit here. If you're debating somebody, and you don't know anything about what y'all are debating, and you go on Google and you find out a bunch of information, and you throw that into your debate, you don't know anything about that subject. You just found some information. Information and knowledge is not the same thing. You can find piles of information on the topic of human sexuality on the internet. That doesn't mean you know anything about it. And just because you might know a few things about it doesn't mean that you know how to communicate it well or have wisdom about the topic. And the problem is, is that we have lots of information. We don't have much knowledge. We don't have much communication. We don't have much wisdom. Third, and this is me speaking as a church historian, the church, capital C church, has done a very poor job on the whole throughout its history Dealing with this topic. In my area of expertise and study in the patristic era, the first 600 years of the church, when you read what people have to say about this topic, human sexuality, particularly as it relates to the gift that God gave in marital human sexuality. The thoughts and opinions go all over the place and most of them are wrong. And that's what the foundation of the church talking about this topic was built on. And so the church has not done a very good job. So why should we talk about this other than I happen to run into a chapter that that talks about it in the book of Leviticus? I want to give you some statistics. I don't normally do this, but I want to give you some stats about why this is an important issue for the church to deal with when opportunity presents itself like it has this morning. First, according to most reputable sources... About 4% of all websites in existence on earth are pornographic websites. That seems like a small number, but that's somewhere between 9 and 13 million active pornographic websites. 
Most of them with free access. You don't even have to pay anything to, to get them. You just have to type them in and not have a block on your computer. Even though that seems like a low-end number, only 4%, pornographic sites receive more... Listen to this. Pornographic sites receive more website traffic every year in the U.S. than Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Netflix, Pinterest, and Zoom combined. Now, think through how often you use any of those things I just said, especially if you're in the younger generation and use a lot of social media. More traffic than any of those combined. Third, according to a host of studies, some done by the American Association for Marriage and Family, some done by the American Psychological Association, 25 to 35 percent of married people will engage in an extramarital affair and somewhere between 20 to 40% of marriages have, have as the stated reason for the ending of that marriage as sexual unfaithfulness. Depending on which site you go to and what study you look at, sometimes the number's lower, sometimes the number's higher. From the research that I did, the number actually tends to lean toward those higher numbers rather than the lower ones. Pew Research, that's the ones who study people who claim to be Christians. Pew Research in 2020, just two years ago, did a survey that found that nearly half of Christians believe that casual sex is an acceptable pattern for living. Half. of people. And now when they run the thing on what, what makes you a Christian, they usually make you check the evangelical boxes. It's not just some vague notion of, I go to a church that has Christian on the door. It's, hey, I believe in Jesus and his resurrection. And okay, all right, so you're actually a Christian. What do you think about casual sex? About half of them said it's okay. It's a fine way to live your life. Friends, there is a problem with sexuality, not just in our culture, because that's usually, when a sermon like this shows up in a church, that's usually what happens. We want to point out there. There's a problem with sexuality in our culture. Out there. Now, there's a problem with sexuality in our culture in here. And because there's been a problem with sexuality in our culture in here for a long time, it has allowed for an even greater problem out there. So let's look at our text. What does our text have to say about this? First, I want to point out that toward the end of our text, Moses makes the statement in his writing And he says that he talks about committing any of these abominations. And there's a whole list of things, and we'll kind of run through those in a second. But before we get to that, the first thing that I want to do is talk about the language of this text. Early on in the first half to two-thirds of our text, it uses the phrase of uncover someone's nakedness. This is a Hebrew euphemism for the, uh, the sexual act. That's what it is. It's not that you're helping someone who's sick and you have to take their clothes off to help them with whatever problems that they're having. It's not that someone is hurt or injured or you know any other host of reasons why you might see someone without their clothes on. It's not talking about those generic things. It's a Hebrew euphemism for the desire to move toward the sexual act. And so that's what it's talking about every time it uses that phrase. 
in this text. That's the first thing that I want you to see. So what are the lists? There's a list. If you kind of break it down, there's a list of abominations because it says any of these abominations that have been named. Don't do that. They did them in Egypt. They're going to they do them in Canaan. You don't do the stuff that they did because they were not living out the way that they should have. So what what are these abominations? All right. So any sort of sexual act with someone who is a near relative. God lists here as an abomination. Any sexual act with a woman and her sister, in other words, marrying a woman and her sister. Now, if you'll note There are patriarchs of the nation of Israel that did that. And it is now called an abomination. Moses is looking back, particularly at the life of Jacob, who became Israel. That's how they got their name. Saying, hey, do you remember what they did? They tricked him and married the wrong daughter. And then they let him have the other one. And the two sisters didn't really like each other. And because the two sisters didn't like each other and want to get each other, they gave him their handmaidens too. And it basically became this mortal combat journey of who can have the most kids to try to win their husband's affection. He said, yeah, let, that's an abomination. Let's not do that. That's, that's not good. He mentions here approaching a woman during her menstrual cycle as an abomination. It mentions here... Having an adulterous relationship with your neighbor's wife as an abomination. It mentions here offering your children to Molech as an abomination. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say here, and when there's room for interpretation, sometimes just presenting both versions is enough to let the weight carry. So I I want to give both understandings of what this meant to offer your children to Molech. So many scholars think that there was a habit, some in Egypt, definitely in the the gods in the land of Canaan, of taking some of their newborn children and offering them as sacrifices to the god of Molech or a version of a god like Molech. So child sacrifice, which is profoundly terrible. If that's what that means, God considers that to be an abomination, as I would suspect he would. However, this entire chapter is about human sexuality. It would seem kind of strange to insert a thing about child sacrifice in the middle of a chapter entirely about human sexuality. There are many scholars who believe And there was a practice of this in the ancient Near East, and we even see examples of it among some of the Greco-Roman gods in the New Testament, of taking some of your children and allowing them to serve in the temples of their gods as child prostitutes. In other words, don't give your children over to pagan idolatrous practices of sexuality, which actually would be more in keeping with the context of this chapter. But it could mean either one of those. It could mean both. Abomination. Going to kill your kid for a false god? Abomination. Going to give your kid over to pagan versions of sexuality for a false god? Abominations. Either way. So if you want to this morning, grab both of those. As far as this offering your children to Moloch. 
Then, of course, as everybody knows, you want to talk about the like one of the handful of verses that almost everybody in Western evangelical churches knows from Leviticus. It's the one about uh, homosexuality being an abomination to the Lord right here. There are certain countries you can't even read Leviticus 18 anymore. We read it here. Thank you, God, for the freedom that we still have to do so. And then there's the abomination of sex act with animals. Apparently in Egypt they did it. Apparently in Canaan they did it. And God told the Israelites, don't do that. Abomination. These are all of the illicit abominations. Now, I want you to note, in many evangelical churches, there would have been a really high temptation for the pastor, if he were preaching through Leviticus, to get to Leviticus 18 and go, oh, this is the chapter where it has that one verse about homosexuality. I'll just preach an anti-homosexual sermon. And everybody will love it. And I won't have to deal with any of the other stuff that's in the chapter that makes up like the other, you know, 30 verses. The 20 other 29 verses I won't have to talk about. I'm not going to do that today. Because here's the thing. Is homosexuality wrong? Yeah. Is you approaching a near relative for sexuality wrong? Yeah. Is you giving your children over to false pagan sexual practices wrong? Yeah. Is you approaching someone who's not your spouse, your neighbor's wife, an abomination? Yeah. Hear me this morning, Christian friend, and this is part of the reason why the church has done a really bad job of this over the years. We go out into the streets and we hold up signs talking about how bad we think homosexuality is. When's the last time there was a Christian rally holding up a sign talking about how bad adultery is? Just in general. Because God hates that and it's an abomination just as much as the other is. In fact, it made his top ten list that he gave us of the Ten Commandments. But you don't see those rallies in evangelical Christianity. What you see, and this is me meddling now instead of... What you see is a lot of guys who are out on the street holding up those anti-homosexuality signs who are actively and secretly engaging in adultery themselves, committing an abomination that God hates while trying to declare a different abomination that God hates that they're not participating in. The severe hypocrisy of it. And that's the condition of evangelical churches when it comes to sexuality now. The reason why everything is so bankrupt Is because we're ready to wag the finger at the thing that's not our problem instead of really dealing with what might actually be our problem. And so this is why we don't skip stuff. Because when you skip stuff in the word, that means you're skipping it in your life. And we don't learn how to deal with it. So why does God care at all about our sexuality? Why does God care? You know, the great mantra of our culture is, is keep your Bible out of my bedroom. That's what they say. Why does God care about human sexuality? Here's why. Human sexuality is one of God's first good gifts. It was given pre-fall. If you remember the mandate given to humanity when they were declared to be made in the image of God, what was it that God said to them to do what? Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Well, I don't want to break this into a biology lesson, but there's just one way that works. Through human sexuality. It's one of the first 
good gifts that God gave to humanity. And it wasn't just a gift he gave them. It was a thing he supplied for them to fulfill his revealed will of them being made in his image. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. So. This is going to sound really weird to people. I know I'm one of the only people who talks like this, but. A bunch of years ago, I wrote a little bitty book on the Proverbs and the fool in this and the fool in that. And there's a chapter in there on the fool in his bed because Proverbs has a whole lot to say about human sexuality. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. And I made six points in that little book. I'm going to make them this morning. There are some connections between the picture of the gospel and human sexuality. So, Philip, that sounds weird. I don't care that it sounds weird. There are. First. Throughout Scripture, these are not the six points yet. I just want to kind of undergird this for a second. Throughout Scripture, idolatry is noted as a kind of adultery. Even in the last chapter that we were just in, in Leviticus 17, it talked about how they were playing the harlot with other gods. God uses the language of when you leave me to pursue other gods, it's like someone who's committing adultery. To parallel that from the negative to the positive in the New Testament, when it talks about our union with Christ, Christ is the husband, the church is the bride, and we have a one flesh union with Christ. He dwells in us and we dwell in him. It's very intentional language that's being used there. So six ways that proper marital sexuality and the gospel are similar to each other. I I want us to kind of walk through this first. Both. Are good gifts from God that are associated with image bearing. When it was given to us in Genesis before the fall to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that was an association of Adam and Eve coming together in this way. They're going to bear God's image in this way. The gospel causes us to be remade as a good gift from God. Into the right image. There's image bearing reality in the good gift of God that's associated. Second. Both of these find their proper boundaries. In a covenant relationship. In which faithfulness is of the highest importance. I'll say that again. Both of these find their proper boundaries. In a covenant relationship. In which faithfulness is of the highest importance in the marriage bed. It's a covenant relationship. And the marriage bed is the spot that displays faithfulness. If you step away from the faithfulness of the marriage bed, you have entered into adultery. In the gospel, there's a covenant relationship and faithfulness is of the utmost importance. You step away from Christ. You have entered into the arena of idolatry. You have demonstrated a lack of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Third, both of these can produce life. Now, I'm not going to chase out the thing. About should it always and contraception. We're not going to get into all that. We don't have time for that. Look, my timer is almost done. We still have a whole lot to cover. But both of them can produce life. Fourth. Both 
are intended to display an attitude of self-sacrifice and the good for the other. Marital sexuality should have an attitude of self-sacrifice and the good for the other. The gospel is a display of Christ's self-sacrifice and the good for the other. That should then produce in us a desire of self-sacrifice and the good for the other who is around us. I believe it was Calvin in his discussion in the Institutes of the Christian Religion on the Ten Commandments. When he got to thou shalt not commit adultery, he made the statement that many a men commit adultery against their own wives because rather than loving her with their sexuality, they're lusting after her as an object of their sexuality. They're not thinking of her in a self-sacrificial, God-honoring way. That's a pretty intense way to think about sexuality. Fifth, both can produce great joy in the proper context. And then sixth, both can be distorted in such a way as to bring great sorrow in the lives of others. When sexuality is misused in any way, there might be a small season of happiness from it, small season of short-term delight, but the long-term damage is severe. The same thing is true with false gospels. It might give a glimmer of hope for a while, but then the emptiness of it afterwards is devastating to the spiritual life of the person who's pursued after that which is not true about Christ and about his work in the world. So let's take a look at a handful of biblical texts. As we get ready to close today, what is it that the Bible says about Christ being the one who redeems marital sexuality? Let's let's find a place to hang the hat, okay? So I want to talk about two Old Testament texts in, in like kind of in mass, in large form. And then I want to talk about one very particular New Testament text as a new covenant key to how this should play out in Christians' lives. So the first one is, and I'm not going to go into a lot of details here. But the first Old Testament text that we need to turn our attention to, if we really want to have a sense of God's view on human sexuality when done in its proper marital context, is the Song of Solomon. When I was studying patristic writers in in my advanced studies, I came across one. I always forget who wrote it, but I just found it intriguing. It was a discussion. It was a letter that he had written to somebody else. And someone was asking him, hey, we have a bunch of new converts and they want to study the word. In what order should we have them study the word of God? And he wrote back and he talked about the gospels. We should start with the life of Jesus. Then we should move to the explanations that Paul gives and then to the other epistles. Then they should turn their attention to the great stories of the Old Testament and its poetry and its history. And and then they should move to the prophets and they should then move off of the prophets into the revelation to see the great fulfillment of things to come. And then last of all, when their faith has been made strong by the rest of the word, they should study the Song of Solomon. And if you know it's in the Song of Solomon, you know why they said that. Listen, Harlequin novels or whatever they are, look, they don't come close to the the richness of wildness that is the Song of Solomon. It's like, it's 
I mean, it's inspired. Like, you want the romance novel that's like the romance novel? This one's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get any better than that. Now, if I were to say to my wife on Valentine's Day that her teeth look like, you know, goats or whatever, I would get in a lot of trouble. Because the, the poetic metaphor has lost something in 21st century America. But when you break down what he's saying to the woman that he loves, his wife, and when you break down what his wife's saying to her, he loves in the Song of Solomon, it's incredibly rich. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable to just read it. It would certainly make a lot of people uncomfortable to have it read out loud to them in a situation like this. So what does the Song of Solomon teach us? The Song of Solomon teaches us two key things. If we're not going to carry it over to Christ, which ultimately you should, Christ's love for his church. But there's always the thing in the middle. It represents some reality that then reflects the greater spiritual reality. So what's the reality of the marital relationship? What is God saying about marital sexuality? Two things. One, he is well pleased to have given us this gift. That's the first thing that Song of Solomon is telling us. Second, there is freedom within the walls of the marital bedchamber. Everybody wants to approach marital sexuality with some sort of shame and tension. God says, no, 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 read this. I want you to enjoy each other. I want you to be delighted. This is a good and blessed thing. So the notion that God is somehow anti-sex is false. You just have to read the Song of Solomon. Second big book from the Old Testament that we look at in mass are the Proverbs. Not all of the Proverbs deal with sexuality, but a large number of them do. There are entire chapters of Proverbs dedicated to what is right and what is wrong about the use of human sexuality. This whole chapter is warning a young man off from going to the wrong side of the street and chasing after the foreign woman. And the language for foreign woman there means a strange woman, a woman who's not your wife. And then there's whole sections dedicated to this is how you should think about your wife to the man. So what does Proverbs teach us? Proverbs teach us. It teaches us warnings. Against the stranger. There are people you're, there's a person you're supposed to be with. And there are people you're not. <coughs> and it also tells us that the person you are supposed to be with. If you're rightly walking with the Lord. You will only delight in them. That's what Proverbs teaches us. So now how do we tie this to the New Testament though? Flip over, if you will, with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And Paul speaks here um, when you start in verse 12. And we're going to get to the main text, chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. But as a little bit of background, Paul, Paul starts here and he says, all, in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. 
All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by any. And then he starts speaking about food. He says food is for the stomach and stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality. And immorality here is the Greek word usually making reference to sexual immorality. But for the Lord and the and the Lord is for the body. Now, God has not only raised uh, uh, not only raised the Lord, but he'll also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one with her body? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee from immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And of course, you know, our, our culture's pro, and the important is here in chapter seven, verses one through five in a second. But I just want to say this as an aside. Our culture's profound misuse by proof texting verses to try to get them to be like champion anthems. You know, it's like the guy holding up the John 316 sign at football games or whatever, or the athlete who has, you know, the, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me on his face. And the other athlete on the other team has the same one. And now we get to find out who the real Christian is because whoever wins the game is the one that was truly strengthened by Christ to do all the things that they want it to do, which is absolutely not what that verse is about at all. We, our culture loves to just rip verses out of their context and champion them around. And so in my really twisted sense of humor, I've always found it hilarious when people are like temple of the Holy Spirit. And it's like, that's a passage about sex. Like you're wearing a T-shirt about that right right now. Like that's what you're doing. I've been bought with a price. Yeah. To glorify God in your body by fleeing immorality. I don't know if that's really what you meant when you bought that T-shirt, though, and put that bumper sticker on your car. Like our culture does weird stuff with verses in the Bible. You've heard those verses. They're in the context of fleeing sexual immorality. And then Paul continues in chapter seven. He says, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul is a Paul is a fan and our culture doesn't like to talk about this. Paul is a fan of people choosing the single life. In fact, in other places in the New Testament, he makes it very clear that a person who's going to do like mission work or pastoral work would probably be better off if they were single because of how dangerous it was, at least in his culture, for someone to do that kind of work because there was a higher possibility of them and their family being put to death in the persecution. And he was like, you know, if they only have to worry about themselves, they have less concern. But if they have to worry about their family, there's more opportunity for them to deny the faith because they might be willing to die, but they might not be willing to watch their kid die. Or their wife die. And I'll just go ahead and say it to the church today right now. There's no, no jab on Sylvania. It's true of almost every Southern Baptist church in the United States. There's no way Sylvania would have hired a Philip Dancy not married to an Amanda. There's no way. 
A single guy coming to be the pastor of a church who doesn't have a wife or a family? No way. He can't. How would he understand me? How would he understand the struggles I have of married life? How would he understand what it's like to raise kids? There's just no way he could pastorally guide me through the most important things in my life. Hashtag Jesus and Paul weren't married and they did just fine. I can't say amen, say ouch. So Paul starts this section in 1 Corinthians 7 with an affirmation to my single, all my single ladies, my single friends in the room. It's okay. Yes, I did just quote Beyonce from the sermon. It is okay for you to live a single life. If that is what God has chosen for you, if that's the gift that God has given to you and you're able to avoid immorality and serve the Lord wholly as a single individual, you are not a less than citizen in the kingdom of God. You're not. Amen. Say, there you go. Now, but if you are going to be married, which Paul is also okay with, here's what he says. But because of immoralities, he just came off talking about fleeing and avoiding sexual immorality. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. And the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. Now listen to what Paul says about marital sexuality. Stop depriving one another. There were people who were married who were then embracing a life of celibacy. And Paul said that's a sin. If you're married, that's not how you live. That, by the way, crushes a huge portion of false teaching from the history of the church for ages. All right. So look what he says. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time. And what should that agreement be for? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of. Of self-control. Now, this is where it gets super tricky. Verse 6. I almost left verse 6 out, but I just want to throw it out there. But I say this by way of concession, not of command. And so there's people that I've talked to who say, well, look, you can pick to do whatever you want to do. Because Paul said it was a concession. Yeah, but friend, it was a concession inspired by the Holy Spirit. Unless you want to say that 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5, Paul just wrote on his own. And it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And then he picks up in verse 7 after he lets you know that and starts going back under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit again. I don't particularly feel that way. So I just want to tell you, it's a concession inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it carries a lot of weight. So what does this mean then for us in a new covenant reality? Jesus has come to redeem the brokenness of human sexuality. It does not take long in the story of Genesis. In the story of Genesis. Just a little after the Cain and Abel incident. We have a man that then marries two women. And it's a burden to his family. It's it's distressing. And then we start seeing that sort of thing happening. And we start seeing sexual violence. We start seeing sexual perversion. And we start seeing adultery. And we start seeing all manners of other kinds of things that are improper happening immediately. Immediately. What do we do about that? 
Friends, the church above all other places should be the safest place for the declaration to be made that God is not anti-sex. And that Christ has come to redeem the entire human experience, which includes sexuality. And that there are ways that we want the sexual experience to be that it should not be. And Christ has come to make us new from the inside out so that we set aside our wayward desires of sexuality and we embrace the proper and true ways of sexuality that reflect proper image bearing the gospel and the new covenant one flesh relationship. Because that's what it does. God gave this gift before the fall and he's redeeming this gift From after the fall. And in his redemption of this gift. Is not to ruin your fun. It's not to restrict you. In such a way. That you feel as if you're not living your life to its fullest. What God has done in his redemption of this issue. Is to create true vulnerability. Safety. Freedom. And genuine intimacy. Between a married couple so that their lives are not, as it says here in Corinthians, hindered by Satan. When people come to me with their marriage problems. And it always makes, well, it doesn't always, it usually makes any other elders that are in the room with me when I'm talking to them a little uncomfortable. Because not long in the course of the conversation I ask them very pointedly and specifically, talk to me about your sex life. That's none of your business. Absolutely it is. Because right here in the text of Scripture, it says that if you're having a problem there, you're making room for the enemy to ruin your life. You're giving room to Satan. Why? Because this act, though physical, it's a lot. We're about to do this. This act though physical, has a high spiritual reality to it. That act of marital sexuality, though physical, has a high spiritual reality to it. We are not Gnostics. We don't believe that we separate the spiritual and the physical. And the physical is just done over here and it's sometimes bad or whatever. And the, spirit, uh, the physical is done over and the spiritual is done over here and it's good. No, There is a spiritual, physical union that Christ has made. It's what it means to be fully human. And hear me this morning, friend. There is nothing that you do in your physical body that does not also have an impact on your spiritual life. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever it is that you do, do it all to the glory of God. Christ has come to redeem The whole human person. And when it comes to marriage, that means he's come to redeem the human wayward perspective on sexuality. And he longs for that event to be a spiritual event, not just a physical event. To be one of self-sacrifice and a display of love and a display of closeness and union. Of Christ's headship and the church's submission and all the other beautiful pictures that come from that. 
to be that one flesh intimacy rather than some version of idolatry and playing the harlot with the strange woman. This is what Christ desires. And friends, I am convinced. I'm convinced. That the reason why the Western church lacks meaningful power in its gospel presentation in the public square is because we have allowed the pursuit of immorality to sexual immorality to become the normal standard of Christian living. And we have little weight behind the words of the gospel that we share because most of our lives look a whole lot like the world's lives in this regard. And there's really no difference, no vibrancy, nothing to show how great life truly can be when it's redeemed in Christ. And friend, I long for the, for us not to give room to the enemy. I long for us not for Satan to come and to attack I long for us to be spiritually victorious in all areas of our lives. And that includes Christ redeeming human sexuality. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for a difficult passage of scripture. Father, thank you for an uncomfortable topic. But Father, thank you that you care enough about us to address the every important area of our lives. Father, you haven't just come to save our souls. You've come to save the whole person, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. You've come to redeem us from the inside out. You've come to transform every area of our lives. And Father, whatever struggles people may be experiencing here today, by your grace and for your glory, and particularly in this area, Father, I pray that you would give grace upon grace where forgiveness and and repentance and healing needs to take place, that you would give that. Where self-control needs to be implemented, you would give that. Where a willingness to properly love one another needs to happen, you would give that. Father, whatever transformation needs to happen regarding this topic in the lives of the people of Sylvania, Father, I pray that you would make it so according to your will. And that you would break us of pride. You would break us of shame. You would break us of fear. And you would replace that, Father, with hope and with joy, and with peace, and with faith, and with love. Father, let Sylvania Church be a shining example of people who are choosing to remain single, being strong in their self-control, and people who are choosing to be married, manifesting the glorious picture of Christ as husband and, and the church as bride, and their full, unashamed love for one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning.